In the name of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, newsflash. Margie and I haven't always been married. Before we met, we actually dated other people. And right before her, I was dating one girl in particular. I had actually known this other girl in high school. We'd grown up in the same church. We knew each other in youth group. And we were reconnected in our early 20s. And I really thought that she was the one. This, of course, was before I met Margie, mind you. This other lady was a fine Christian woman. She was attractive and well-liked. She was driven and successful. But, you know, no matter how hard I tried, it just wasn't working. So I did the best thing I could think of at the time. I took the matter to my dad, who is the fount of all wisdom, of course. And I said, Dad, you know, I really like, I really like this girl that I'm dating. But it doesn't seem to matter how hard I try. It just, it just seems difficult, forced, and not working. So I said to my dad, fount of all wisdom, how do you know? How do you know, Dad, when you've found the right one? And then came the, the long pause, you, you know the one. And the, the furrowed brow that rolled across his face. That look that only a dad could make. And as I waited for what seemed to be an eternity, pining for any morsel of truth that could help me, as if everything depended upon the answer that he gave me, He simply said, well, son, you just know. (laughs) What do you mean? You just know. (laughs) Well, what kind of an answer is that? What do you mean? You just know. Dad, you got to help me here. I mean, this is this is father son stuff. This is mano a mano. Like we're talking important decisions here. And though I didn't quite get the answer, I I knew I knew there was something about what he said that was right. That there would somehow be signs that I wasn't now seeing. That that things would happen in the right way when the right girl came into my life. Okay, I'm going to leave you in terrible suspense about how this works out. (laughs) Today we have another difficult reading in Scripture. Jesus paints a very dire and desperate picture. What in the world is this abomination of sacrilege that he's talking about? What is this terrible thing that's coming where nothing this bad has ever happened in all of creation and nothing this bad will ever happen again? He's prophesying about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And for us to really understand what he's saying, because this is what really happened in human history, there are three things I want us to get at this morning. The first thing we've just got to see is what I'll call the fury of the Roman Empire. 
In the years following Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, religious and political tensions, they continued to grow between the mighty Roman Empire and the nation of Israel. You know this from history. They reached a fever pitch in AD 66. The Roman Empire launched a four-year war against Israel, wreaking total destruction and devastation in the land. The, The accounts of the atrocities are so bad, they're simply unspeakable in the context of a sermon. It was as awful as Jesus said it would be. And the message that the mighty Roman Empire was sending to the Israelites was this. We've conquered your people. We've dethroned your king. We've destroyed your temple. And therefore, we have beaten your God. That's the message that was being sent. And frankly, it would be hard for the Jews to argue the point, wouldn't it? It's one thing to be dragged off into Babylon where you're serving a foreign king in a foreign land under a foreign god, but there you are in your own land trying to do your best to serve your own god, even if your king is a little bit suspect from time to time. But there it was. The temple was leveled. It was destroyed. And the mighty Roman Empire had done it. Let's get the importance of this from the Israelites' perspective. Because the second thing that we have to see is what I'll call the failure of Israel. The temple is where God lived, in symbol and in substance. The the, the, the existence of the temple is where the God of the Israelites lived, who they knew to be the God of all of creation and Lord over everybody in a sense. It's where the sacrifice happened year after year for the atonement of sin. And it was gone. So listen to the words of one of our own Anglican bishops, N.T. Wright. He says it this way. So when Jesus prophesies these things, believe it or not, He's actually issuing the just judgment of God. Falling on a system that opposed God's call and opposed His gospel. What in the world does He mean by that? He means that that sacrifice that was happening year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, it was never going to get the job done. That that the priest, as we talk about all the time, was an incompetent mediator because he was a sinner, and the animal was an insufficient sacrifice because he hadn't done anything wrong. It was never going to work. The animals weren't causing the problem. In other words, we're causing the problem. So when Jesus Christ gave His life on the hard wood of the cross, He was the perfect offering for us and for the sins of the whole world. He did what no animal could do. He did what no sinful priest can do. He did what only the perfect God-man could do. His life, His atoning death, and His glorious resurrection. That's what made it right. And friends, this is why Bible study is so important because of the author of Hebrews. He talks about it this way. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author speaks directly to this idea. He says the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, they can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. This is what he says. For if that were true, the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. Under the Old Testament system of sacrifice, it just wasn't going to get it done. 
It's impossible, the author says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this is what he says. But Jesus Christ sets aside the first to establish the second. That through the sacrifice of Christ, we've been saved once for all. And all means all. It means everyone, everywhere, at all times, and in all places. So here's the point. As devastating as it was, as awful as it was, the destruction of the temple is actually about the salvation of God and the vindication of Jesus Christ, His Messiah. Have you ever wondered why there is no temple in Israel today? It's not necessary. The old system of sacrifice is over. It is not necessary. The temple's not there because God doesn't want the temple to be there. Why doesn't He want the temple to be there? Because there doesn't need to be a temple there. And let me just go ahead and correct a modern problem that we're having in certain circles of Christian thought. The goal of Christians is not to help the Jews rebuild the temple so that sacrifices can start happening again. Because that's undoing what God's already done. The goal of Christians is to preach the gospel. The good news that what? It is finished. Why did Jesus cry out those words from the cross? It is finished. The Old Testament's over. The Old Testament of law is over. The New Testament of grace has begun. There's no temple in Israel because there's not supposed to be one. In fact, Jesus says this in John's Gospel. He says, destroy this temple, speaking of Himself, and what's going to happen? I will raise it up in three, three days. And the Jews says, this is impossible. It took us 46 years to build the temple. No, forget that temple. It's over. I'm the temple. Look to Me and find your salvation. Friends, we have to realize that that the writing in Scripture is actually written to a particular people at a particular time for a a particular purpose. Now, there are transcendent truths in Scriptures, but this Scripture is being written about the destruction of the temple, and it's actually good news. And here's why it's good news, because Jesus is prophesying that this is going to happen. This destruction is going to occur. And what He's saying to the Christians is, get out of Dodge. That when the devastation of the temple occurs, when the mighty Roman Empire levels the Jewish system, get away. Why? Because in the aftermath, when people are wandering around the devastation, and they're asking themselves, what in the world just happened here? They are literally going to be desperate to hear good news. And you're going to give it to them. What's Jesus doing? He's dethroning the false gods of this world. So when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, when we make Him Lord, when we allow Him to inhabit our hearts, do you know what He does? He destroys the temple of sin and death that we have. That causes us to live in fear and with lack of faith about how things are going to work out. And you can imagine all of the people walking around this earth right now who are living in some kind of devastation in their own lives. 
Something's been destroyed. Something's been devastated. And Jesus levels the playing field. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look to anything else. And don't look to anyone else. Look to me. I will destroy. If you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. This message is for the Christians in the early church. And it's a transcendent truth that applies to us today. Why? Because I guarantee you that you and I are either walking out of the devastation into our lives or we're about to walk into one. Evil and lawlessness are all around us. And we desperately need to hear good news and we desperately need to apply good news to our lives. So the third point is this. The fury of the Roman Empire, the failure of Israel... And yet in the midst of everything going wrong, there's still the opportunity to get it right. There's still the opportunity to get it right. So let me close with one quick story. Margie and I managed to get it right. When I found Margie, or maybe better said, when Margie found me, it was natural. It was easy. It wasn't forced. Do you know what I'm saying? When you find that person who is the love of your life, you just know it. And it's the same way with Jesus Christ. That He tears down the temples of fear, of of anxiety, the temples of failure, the temples of worldly success, And he offers us something better. Now here's the really cool part about the story. When Margie and I were first married, we didn't have these things called cell phones. We actually wrote letters to one another when I would go away on trips. I don't know if y'all have heard of letters. If you still use letters, you can probably find them in the National Museum of Archives somewhere. L-E-T-T-E-R-S. Look it up on Google. And so when I would go on a mission trip and I'd unpack my bags, often I would find this letter from Margie so that if she felt far away, I had something that let me know she was right there. Letters became emails. Emails became text. Text became insanity. That's another sermon. (laughs) What's, What's God done for us? Flip the slide. Did you catch that this morning? Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That we may ever hold fast to the hope of everlasting life given to us by Jesus Christ our Savior. What is the Bible? It's God's love letter. If you're wondering where He is and how to find Him, read the Bible. Jesus warns us. There are false Christs. There are false promises that are going to be given. How do we know who the real Christ and the real promise is? Open the Bible. And I'll just leave it this way, my friends. Like my marriage to Margie, like my beginning of my relationship with Jesus Christ, when I opened the Bible for the first time, it was so easy. Because the promises of God started unfolding 
in my life. It wasn't forced. It wasn't unnatural. And for almost 30 years now, nearly every day, when I open the Scriptures, I find <laughs> Jesus. And the promises and the purposes that He has in mind for me. And the same is true for everyone, not only in this room, but in the city of Fort Worth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. When was the last time you opened God's love letter to you? I'm serious. We have these things called life groups. What a great opportunity to get together and study the scriptures that we may ever hold fast to the hope of everlasting life found in Jesus Christ. Advent's coming up. Every year, Father Mark puts out Advent devotionals. Parents, what a great day, way for you to sit down with your children and study the Scriptures together. To form them and to forge them into the image of God, which He's designed and desired for them to be. Jesus Christ is the lover of our soul. And the Bible is the love letter that He's given to us that we might find Him and be found in Him. 